Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to be long to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from your God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. All right, well, it's good again to return to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and so I hope that you are there. Uh, with me in those first seven verses as we near the end of our look at this introduction um, to the book of Romans. Uh, last Sunday, I attempted to preach on verse 4 in the evening service, and I think it was one of the most confusing and muddled sermons I have ever preached. I was very uh, disheartened. I don't think the main points were clear, and that bothered me because uh, this verse is important. And so uh, this morning, uh, I'm attempting a do-over of sorts. We're going to take verses 4 and 5 together, and uh, we're going to look at these verses together. They deserve to be together. They do go together. And uh, I'm going to pray that God will help us leave here with a a better understanding of verses 4 and 5 and uh, uh, with joy in our hearts because of what they say. Uh, So let me begin explaining how I think these verses work. Um, Let me begin reading it for us in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul has been talking about the gospel. And he says in verse 3 that the gospel he preaches is a gospel concerning his son, concerning God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. I think, if I understand these verses right, that they work in much the same way as the Great Commission works. In Matthew 28, Um, you remember there in in Matthew 28, you have the Lord Jesus risen from the dead and he's standing before his apostles in his now perfected, resurrected body. He's about to be ascended to the right hand of God and he looks at his apostles and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. 
Because my Father has given to me all power, all power to equip you, all power to command you, all power to command the Spirit to go through the Gospel and change hearts, because I now sit on the throne, go, disciples, and preach the Gospel and marvel as souls are saved. That's how the Great Commission works. I think that that's exactly how these verses work. In verse 4, we learn that at the resurrection of Jesus, He was appointed the Son of God in power. That is, all God's power was handed over to the Son, entrusted to Him. The power of the Holy Spirit is Jesus' power. And now, seated on the throne, King Jesus is giving His people, that's us, grace and apostleship for missions. Jesus reigns, and therefore we evangelize. I think that's the point. Now to flesh that out for us, let me make three very quick points about verse 4. And listen carefully, because I'm going to go through these very fast. So just listen to these three points about verse 4. Number one, point one. That Jesus was declared, or that word could be translated appointed in verse 4, I think it should be, that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power at His resurrection means that all authority over all creation has been given to Jesus. That's point one. Every thunderstorm, every polar bear, every constellation... Every molecule, every human heart is now subject to the Lord Jesus who rules over all, stands as judge over all. Jesus reigns. That's point one. Point two, that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power at His resurrection means that God has now made Him both Christ and Lord both Messiah, the one through whom we must go to have salvation, and Lord, the one who reigns over our lives and teaches us how to live. Peter at Pentecost said in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, know this for certain, that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, people could talk about him as that crazy man from Nazareth who kept going on and on about how he thought he was the Son of God. That's how they could have talked if he hadn't risen from the dead. But because he has risen from the dead, it is now evident and clear that Jesus was not a mere man, that he truly was the Son of God, and what he said about himself was true. And therefore, he is the Christ. He is the one to whom we must go if we're to have any hope of being made right with God. And he is the King over all. And then point three, that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. See that in verse 4? According to the Spirit of holiness means that though Jesus lived in the weakness of His flesh before His death, He now lives as an exalted man, His mighty arm being the Holy Spirit who accomplishes all His will. 
In other words, because of verse 4, whatever Jesus determines to do, He will do. For the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ who is all-powerful. So verse 4 tells us who our Jesus is. He is exalted. He is on His throne, reigning, able to accomplish all His will. What does that have to do with missions and evangelism? Remember, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome because he longs to do missions with the Roman church. He wants them to partner with him in getting the gospel to Spain. Missions is at the heart of why Paul is writing this letter. And so what does the exaltation of Jesus, what is this truth that God has rewarded Jesus for his faithful obedience with all authority and power over all things, what does that have to do with missions? Well, verse 5 tells us. Verse 5 tells us, Three things at least. It tells us the ultimate purpose of missions. It tells us how that purpose is accomplished. And it tells us how King Jesus is bringing it all to pass. That's what I see here in verse 5. The ultimate purpose of missions. How that purpose is being accomplished. And how King Jesus is bringing it to pass. So what I want to do is work backwards through verse 5. And see it for ourselves. At the end of verse 5, we read, For the sake of His name among all the nations. See it? For the sake of His name among all the nations. I take that to mean that the ultimate purpose of missions is the glory of the name of Jesus. What is the end game of missions? What is the ultimate purpose? It is that the nations will know Jesus, love Jesus, and find endless delight and satisfaction in Jesus. The ultimate purpose of missions is that in every nation, people would glory in who Christ is, that they would be so overwhelmed by who He is and what He has done for them, They will live in joyful praise and worship forever. Jesus has purchased His bride. He has died for her. And now the goal of missions is that that bride will be gathered in, made holy, and brought to her bridegroom. God the Father's plan is to give Jesus to the church and to give the church to Jesus and for them to find endless great delight in one another. The ultimate point of your marriage, if you're married, the ultimate purpose of my marriage is to point to this marriage. And missions is about bringing the bride and the bridegroom together. And when the bride is gathered in, the great wedding feast will come, says the book of Revelation. And the honeymoon is what we call eternal life, heaven. And so the application is clear. We need to test ourselves as individuals. We need to test ourselves as a church. If the ultimate goal of all missionary endeavors should be that people will glory in the name of Jesus, is that the motivation that drives this church? Everything we do, Every ministry, 
every little Bible study group, every project, every outreach, the singing, everything is the thing that underlies it, is the purpose that drives us. Is it this motivation of seeing people come to know and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ? We must not be driven by tradition. We must not meet together and pray and preach and Bible study and do projects simply because, well, that's just what we're supposed to do. That's just what we've always done. We must not be some kind of a club that exists just because we exist, giving us something to do with our spare time. We must be a people driven by love for our Savior and a desire to see others know the joy of knowing Him. Isaiah 26, 8, Your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Can you say that? Jesus, I long to see people praising You, loving You, worshiping You. Is that Your desire? There are other motivations we could fall into. We could easily become passionate about spreading the glory of our own name as a church. It's easy for churches to fall into the trap of existing for their own name. They do programs and mission trips and children's activities and camps and revivals and all sorts of other things and they do them not because they are longing to be used for the glory of the name of Jesus but some do it because they want to be known in town as the church where things are ha- is happening. They want to be the big church. They want to have the pews filled. They want to have the budget get big until it becomes about their own name. We must never think that way. We want to be active. We want to be busy. We want to be doing many, many things together as a church. But ultimately, what drives all of them must be a desire to see people know and love Jesus. Our goal, like Paul's goal, must be to do all we can by God's grace, with His leadership, to see the name of our Jesus loved and honored among all men and women. We are ambassadors of King Jesus. We live for His name. Our desire is for people to see Him and love Him. Now, by the way, if this is true, if it is a passion for the name of Jesus that is to drive missions, could it be that the reason some may not have much of a heart for missions Could it be because they do not have much of a heart for the glory of Jesus? I I wonder about your own involvement in missions. What, What does it include? Do you stay informed about what's happening in the world as we seek to reach these unreached people groups with the gospel? As we think about the, what's happening with the International Mission Board and how they had these missionaries who thought they weren't going to be able to go and then now because of these special offerings it looks like they're going to get to go. Are, are you being informed about that? Are you praying about those kinds of things? As you live out your life each day, as you go to work, as you spend time with your family, is in the midst of all of that, is your mind thinking, who can I talk to about the Gospel? How can I minister to this person who's just walked through my door and bring them to Christ? Do you have that kind of heart? And can I suggest to you that that if you don't have that kind of heart, 
that if you spend your week thinking completely about passing things, that it's probably because you don't have the heart for Christ you might think you do. Those who love Jesus love missions. Because those who love Jesus love His bride. Missions is all about bringing the bride to the groom. Check your heart. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17 says, The great purpose of missions is the name of Jesus. But, in order for that great purpose to be accomplished, of people all over the world loving and declaring in, in glory the name of Jesus, something must happen. Something must happen. And in verse 5, we see what it is. The obedience of faith must happen. Look at verse 5 again. Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about... So there's something that has to be brought about. Something, something has to happen. Something has to occur in order for the name of Jesus to be gloried in among the nations. What has to be brought about? The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is what we desire to bring about. The goal of missions is to bring about the obedience of faith so that people can glory in the name of Jesus. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine being on a cruise boat in Alaska. Has anybody here been on an Alaskan cruise? Anybody? A few? Okay. My parents went, loved it, and uh, I've told us a lot about it. I've seen the videos. Obviously, never been myself, but would love to one day. I want you to imagine being on an Alaskan cruise. There are whales in the water. There are majestic glaciers rising up from the, the water, stretching up high into the sky. There are mountains in the background. And the entire scene, as you, as you stand on that boat and you look at all that's before you, it, just, it takes your breath away. It's glorious and amazing. And standing beside you, as you marvel at this view, is a man who is looking straight down at his feet. And you touch his shoulder and you, you point at the whales that are breaking the surface. Look, there's one! Aren't they incredible? Right? The man doesn't even look. just whatever. He's got a quarter in his hand. He's just fidgeting with it. Not looking. Acts like he's bored to death. And about that time, you, you say, look, as a, as a whole mass of snow and ice come tumbling down a mountainside into the water, just like something you'd see on a National Geographic special, you know, here it all comes tumbling down, makes this big splash, and your breath is just over, just, just taken away, you're just amazed at what you're seeing. And, and, and the man beside you, he, he, he kind of hears the splash, but he, he no real response. You're thinking, what's with this guy? And then you understand, because when he heard the splash, he, he kind of looked up, but there was no look on his face. The man is blind. And he has no capacity, as you do, to see and savor this glory that is right in front of you. Friends, each and every day, we live in a world where the glory of God is all around us. Amen? 
We see the sky, we have the sun and the moon, we have our own bodies, we have the, the, the world around us. There is so much glory, so much that is pointing us to the truth that God is good and that He's mighty and that He's creative and that He's wise. And yet every day people live in this world and choose not to give glory to that God. Why? The Bible says it's because they're blind. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.4. Describe those that we love who are lost. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. According to Paul, the eyes of the hearts of the lost are closed and they live in darkness. The only way that they can join us in seeing and savoring the Lord Jesus Christ is if they come to believe what the Bible says about Him. If they come to believe that He is the Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer of all things. If they come to believe that He came to earth as a baby and lived a perfect life that He suffered for our sakes and died for our sins, that He rose again, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You won't glory in that Jesus if you don't believe in that Jesus. And therefore, the command of the Gospel is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our purpose as a part of the church of Christ is to be used by God in bringing about the obedience to that command, the obedience of faith. Our job is to say to the blind man, look, and to be used by God in calling the blind man to see and to savor and to be saved and to worship, and to glory in the name of Jesus. From that moment, because the blind man can see, he will react differently to what's in front of him. Those who by God's grace are are made to see Jesus, from that moment will love Jesus because He's lovely. They will obey Jesus because He's good and wise. They will look upon Jesus through the eyes of faith, and they will obey Him. Folks, the goal of evangelism and missions is not simply to get people to make professions. It's to get people to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that will be obedience. We obey people we love, especially when they are wise and good. When it says we must bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name, it means that we are to be used in bringing people to obey the command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must never fall into the counting decisions game. We must never fall into the we had 50 decisions for Jesus today kind of evangelism because that's not biblical evangelism. Evangelism is being able to say there are 50 people in our church 
who are now showing with their lives that they have passed from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing. They now love the Lord and they are showing it by serving Him with joy. Praise God. The goal of evangelism is that the name of Jesus would be honored in the lives of people. And we know that a person has passed from darkness to light when by God's grace that is happening. The goal of evangelism is disciples, people who are living for the glory of Jesus. Wait a minute, Justin. That is all well and good. It's also impossible. I mean, if we're standing beside that blind man on our Alaskan cruise, we can say, look over here, look over there, look at... We can say, look, all day long. He can't see. And there's nothing in me. I'm, I'm not a, 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 an eye physician. I, I, I don't know how to, to fix this man's blindness. I, I can say, look all day. I cannot make him see. And it's the same way with missions and evangelism. It's a lost cause if it's up to us. Because we can tell them the glories of Jesus all day. We can talk about the wisdom of Jesus. We can talk about the goodness of Jesus. We can talk about how He humbled Himself in a manger. How He suffered and died. We can talk about Him as our mediator. We can talk about Him as our prophet, our priest, our king. We could talk all day till we're blue in the face of the glories of Jesus. But if they have unbelief in their heart, they can't see. And that's why the connection between verses 4 and 5 are so important. In verse 4, Jesus is given power according to the Spirit so that now, through His power, people can see. He gives us, His church, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. If it was up to us, yes, in our own power, nobody would come to see and savor the Lord Jesus. It would never happen. But we don't do evangelism in our own power. We're not to do missions trusting in our own strengths. We do them in the power that Jesus provides. We, we preach the gospel not trusting, oh, if I, if I write this sermon just right, if I use the right tone, if I... And then yell at the right place. People will get saved. No. We do missions and evangelism by saying, all I can do is preach the truth. All you can do is share the truth with your friends and neighbors. All you can do is tell them about the Jesus you love. And then we trust in Christ and we know that He is powerful to make that word alive in their hearts and to open their eyes. That's how we do evangelism and missions. <laughs> the situation is even worse than you might think. It's not just that the lost are blind. They are hostile to our message. To the unbelieving, the gospel is foolishness and a stumbling block. And then on top of that, we have the enemy of ourselves. Fear grips us so that we don't speak up when we should. 
And our world is full of distractions that keep us from, from having the hearts of compassion for the lost that we ought to have. And then on top of all that, the New Testament teaches and history confirms that in our world there will always be, till Jesus comes back, these, these governments and worldly powers using their might against the church so that if you do speak, you might lose your head. So we have the blindness of the lost. We have a hostility to the Gospel. We have a fear in the hearts of Christians. And we have danger in the world. All of that are obstacles to evangelism and missions. And yet, on top of all of that is this truth. Jesus is on His throne and He has the power to give the grace to His church all that they need to accomplish His will and see people saved. He provides us the power to overcome fear, to face suffering, to be bold and courageous, and to speak the good news to the nations. If Jesus isn't on His throne, I'd be scared to death to preach the Gospel. And it would be fruitless anyway. But He is on His throne. Jesus gives us grace and apostleship. You see that? Verse 5, He gives His church grace and apostleship to bring this about. Take the word apostleship here, not as a reference to the office of the apostles, but in a more generic sense. Uh, uh, that we have been given apostleship means that we as the church of Jesus have been given the commission to be messengers and ambassadors for Him, taking His gospel to the world. There are no more apostles with a capital A who speak the very words of God and write Scripture. There's no more of those. But the church of Christ as a whole has an apostolic calling. The word apostle just means a messenger. We as the church have been sent out as a light to the world with the joyful responsibility of getting the greatest, most powerful message of the world to the people who need it. We've been given apostleship. We've been given a commission. But that's not all. Jesus does not give us this charge without giving us all the grace we need to see that we accomplish this charge. He gives us grace and apostleship. We as a church, if we look to Christ, will find all the grace we need to reach out to our lost family members, to witness to our co-workers, to get the gospel into the hands of people in our own community, and to play a vital role in sending and sustaining missionaries across the globe. Let's close with some questions. Some questions for you to consider. Think about your own heart, your own life. Number one, is your heart aflame with love for Jesus? Nothing, nothing else matters if you don't have that. If you don't have a burning love for Jesus... You're not going to do missions. You're not going to do evangelism. You have no reason to. Is your heart aflame with love for Jesus? And if it is, are you expressing that passion for Jesus by eagerly doing all you can to help others in your life and around the world come to know Him as you do? What needs to change in your life this morning so that you can be more useful to God in bringing others to Christ? 
practically. What needs to change in your life? Question two. For us as a church, as we do evangelism here at home, as we partner with others in doing missions around the world, are we clear about what our goal is and what it isn't? We cannot, in good conscience, partner with people who are simply after bringing men, women, boys and girls to to make a decision and then they just leave them and that's it. Because that's not the Great Commission and it's not missions and evangelism. We know from this verse and many others that the goal is to see people radically changed, moving from a life of disobedience to a life of obedience. Disciples, not converts, is what we're after. And so as we think about our future and what kind of evangelism we want to do and how we can partner with others in missions, we want to partner with those who are making disciples. Number three. Do we truly believe, think about this, do we truly believe that missions and evangelism can only be fruitful when Jesus gives the grace and the power that is needed? And if we affirm that, that we need the power and grace of Jesus for evangelism, then are we praying like that is true? Did you pray before this service that Jesus would come and give grace? Did you pray before and during our outreaches over the last weekends? We had the, the, the outreach at the Spring Hope Festival and our outreach at the Down East Festival and we gave out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gospel tracts. But did we pray before and during and now that Jesus would bring grace to make those things effective in people's lives? When you're when you see in the bulletin that there's a a deacon's meeting, a, a leader's meeting, do you pray that God will give them wise thinking in helping our church be involved in missions and evangelism? When you see that there's going to be a missions team meeting, do you come? And when you come, have you prayed, Jesus, we're going to do our best as, as people to try and do something good for your kingdom, but we need your grace. Before your Sunday school class, did you pray? Oh, it's so easy to say with your lips, we need the grace of Jesus. But you prove whether you really believe that by whether or not you're praying to Him for it. Are you asking Him? Number four, finally. Are there any in this room this morning who have not yet been made to see? Are there any in here whose hearts are still away from Christ? Who don't know what it is to see Him and love Him and serve Him as King? And if there is, I would plead with you to run to Christ in your heart this morning. See Jesus lifted up as the Savior who is able and willing to forgive your sins. He is able and willing to make you right with God. He is able and willing to teach you how to live a life that will bring you joy and bless others and bring glory to His name. Will you run to Him? Will you turn from living according to yourself and say, Jesus, You are wiser than me. You love me. Teach me how to live. I trust in You. Make me right with God. If you've never done that before, plead with you to do so today 
and to show it the way they did in the Bible by being baptized and getting involved in a church. I pray that we would all rejoice that our Jesus is King and therefore we would go and make disciples. Let's pray.